This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Instead of griping about the limitations and sniping at his bandmates, instead of destroying expensive guitars and amps like Pete Townsend, Jeff Beck thought maybe he could channel his frustration towards something more productive. So he started thinking about side projects and different directions. Just 22 at the time, he was mercurial, temperamental, eh, kind of a pain in the ass, really. Jeff Beck was also, and still is, a stunningly original guitar player. He's the guitarist guitarist, hugely influential. An electric virtuoso who brought a brash, experimental spirit to the Yardbirds. They made their best records and hit the peak of their popularity during those 20-some-odd months when Jeff Beck toured and recorded as a bird. In May of 66, he convinced the Yardbirds management team to book studio time for a side project. He reached out to his childhood friend and fellow Yardbird, Jimmy Page. This session, we're going to argue, lit the fuse that ignited Guitar Mageddon in late 60s, early 70s London. Keith Moon and John Entwistle were feeling at loose ends. The Who were successful and the money was rolling in. They were living the rock star life in London and out on the road. But Keith and the Ox were feeling left behind. Pete Townsend got the songwriting royalties. Clever bloke, but he could be a rot jobby bastard in the studio. Roger Daltrey could be a rot prick sometimes, too. Roger disapproved of their drug-fueled annex out on the road, and he even got violent with Keith about it. Chuffy smug wankers. The both of them. They don't know how to blow off steam have a bit of fun. Taking all the money, too. Fuck them. So, Keith and John were open to offers. But when the call came from Jeff Beck, John Entwistle demurred. He didn't want word getting back to Pete. Not just yet. Maybe some residual loyalty to his old school chum kicked in. Keith didn't have that kind of relationship with Pete, and he was not one to think about consequences anyway. So he said, Right, Jeff, I'll be there. Pagey be there too. Lovely. Keith wanted things kept on the down low, so he donned a disguise. He rolled up late. Of course he did, rocking a big pair of shades and a furry Cossack hat. No entwistle. So at Jimmy Page's suggestion, John Paul Jones was brought in to play bass. Jones and Page knew each other well from session work in London. Jonesy was versatile, classically trained as a kid. He played guitar, bass, keys, he even dabbled with woodwinds. And a good bandmate, a real pro, easygoing and collaborative. So, spring of 1966 in the Soho recording studio, we've got Jeff Beck, a yardbird looking to fly the coop. We've got one half of Led Zeppelin and one quarter of The Who. For good measure, add studio keyboard ace Nicky Hopkins. All doing the Beck's Bolero. Mm-hmm. 
Now, we're not big fans of the muddy 1966 production. There weren't any good studios in the UK back then. Even the Beatles recorded in facilities that were years behind what was available in the States. It is what it is, so try to hear past that. There's a lot we can say about Bex Bolero. It's a spiffy little piece, and the history behind it is really cool. We've linked to some good sources in the show notes. We want to zero in on that break at about 1.30. Holy crap, is it so good. Jeff Beck bursts out this crunchy descending riff while the rhythm section, Keith Moon of the Who and John Paul Jones of future Led Zeppelin, thunders along behind them. All right, here goes. It is metal as fuck. Just to remind you, we're in 1966. There are not a lot of things around that are metal as fuck. With that endearing aw shucks modesty he's so well known for, (laughs) Jeff Beck likes to proclaim it the first heavy metal riff ever, and I came up with it. He's said that more than a few times in interviews. He's not wrong. It's as good a candidate as any. To reinforce the point, just look ahead about 10 to 15 years. Eddie Van Halen, Nuno Betancourt, Steve Vai, all those heavy rock shredders from the 80s owe a big debt to Jeff Beck. They've all said as much, and you can hear it in their playing. So, sure thing, Jeff Beck. We'll co-sign your narrative. You were the first face melter, the first balls deluxe shredder, the first butt rocker and panty dropper with a six string. Make the horns up sign for Jeff Beck and Beck Spolero, all you heavy-duty rockers out there. It was the start of something big. So, Beck, Page, Jones, and Moon, sitting around smoking and joking after the session. Someone, probably Beck, brought up the idea of forming a supergroup and how their respective bandmates and managers would respond if they did. That would go over like a lead balloon, someone quipped. More like a Led Zeppelin, Keith Moon quipped right back. Everyone had a good laugh and the night continued. But the phrase stuck. Led Zeppelin. Hmm, great name. L-E-D Zeppelin. Jimmy Page filed that one away. It burst into flesh. Get it started. Get it started. It's rising. It's rising. It's rising. Terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between us, this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's burning. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. And it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flame is crashing to the ground. Not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity. Oh, no. 
intended to be education and commentary. It will discuss adult themes and may use coarse language. Pantheon Podcasts presents Rock and Roll Archaeology with host Christian Swain. Music. Culture. Technology. And now, on with the show. Welcome back, diggers. So nice to be back. If you love this podcast, please give us a solid rating wherever you do listen. And if you really really love this podcast and want to shower us with garlands and mana, go to patreon.com backslash Pantheon Podcasts. Yes, we are part of the Global Pantheon Podcast Network, where music is the business and the business is the music. Okay, that is the news portion. Let me tell you a little bit about today's episode. The team has been very hard at work since we left you in Ohio, uh, episode 20. We've got another big story for you. My writing partner, Richard Evans, our sound designer, Jerry Danielson, producer Peter Ferrioli, and myself are very happy about this episode. What? Why? Why as opposed to all the previous episodes? <laughs> well, because now we are getting into the music that we discovered as it was happening. These acts weren't just handed down to us. No, we bought a lot of these albums with our own hard-earned money, and we saw many of these acts in their heyday. And we ate it up. How could we not? It is one of the most dominant moments in rock and roll history. But even though we are now getting into our own timelines, as always, the research is king. And we are still being surprised on what we don't know or what is now so much more obvious to discern with time. We are moving hard into the 70s now. The new left is dead, including foreign Ohio. The glow of the 1960s is quickly fading. And while the boomer hippies are maturing, adulting, and turning away, there are the early rumblings of change as the decade turns over. Very shortly, another generation will become more and more prominent as our story continues to unfold. Now, while Gen X is still a little young to be pushing any boomers off the cultural cliffs just yet, the music that will dominate their lives is far more entrenched in the 70s and the 60s. And today is our first shot at setting their stage. It's also when rock loses some of its role to the consternation of some in elite circles and begins to create fissures amongst the consumers of the product. Regardless of the opinion makers and their concerns, <laughs> it goes big, very big time to the masses. The genie is completely out of the bottle now. And regardless of the establishment's consternations, like the silent majority... Unlike the turning of the clock from the 50s to the 60s, 
it is never going back in the bottle, no matter how hard they try. In fact, rock music and the culture it spawns now dominates everywhere, from Peoria stateside to even international Timbuktu. It is now the tribe maker and the taste setter for the schoolyards and the concert halls, on radio, television, and most everywhere the kids gather. And the passions can't get much higher, as we will see. It births the closest things to gods and goddesses since Olympus. Today, we are going to spotlight the gods. We will have the Hammer of the Gods, the Doom of the Gods, and an act with more names to remember than all of those ancient Olympian heroes combined. Finally, towering over them all, is our very own Zeus, who is still throwing a few lightning bolts from the heavens. Today's episode is all about the original six-string gunslingers, the first guys, and yes, almost exclusively guys at this point, that use their instruments as weapons, metallic strings with crackling electricity shooting high wattage solos and riffs, a sound made possible by the Industrial Revolution that began a century before, that musically harnesses the noise of factory buzzsaws, smelters, and turbines, loud as fuck and powerful as the wrath of heaven. But it is also a sexy beast that will grant those who master it with wreaths of garlands and Romanesque triumphs not seen since the age of the Caesars. Born is the true definition of the rock star. So, let's get to it. Here is episode 21. Guitar Mageddon. Oh, I don't believe it. That, that, uh, uh. Don't touch me. Hey, Ray. Hey, Sugar. Tell them who we are. Well, we're big rock singers. We got golden fingers. And we're loved everywhere we go. That sounds like us. We sing about beauty and we sing about truth. At $10,000 a show. Right. We take all kind of pills to give us all kind of thrills But the thrill we never know Is the thrill that'll get you when you get your picture On the cover of the Rolling Stone Rolling Stone Wanna see my picture on the cover Wanna buy five copies for my mother Wanna see my smiling face on the cover of the Rolling Stone $10,000 a show. Diggers, that sounds mighty fat, does it not? And keep in mind, this song came out 50 years ago. So that 10 G's is more like 75 G's nowadays. Even split four ways. Nice work if you can get it. But 10 G's a night was peanuts for the G. As Led Zeppelin rampaged across America in the early 70s, Peter Grant routinely secured 100, 200, 300 G's a night, sometimes more for his boys. They got an unheard of 90% of the take, and if promoters didn't like it, well, they could just fuck right off. Friends and family called him the G, sometimes Big G, and he was a G, all right, an OG. Original gangsta Peter Grant was born in 1935, nearly a decade before the oldest of his young charges wore baby Jimmy Page. G was raised in modest circumstances. Mom was a secretary. Dad wasn't around. He was one of thousands of British kids evacuated from Greater London during the war, 
out to the countryside to protect them from German bombers. Maybe the G was scarred by the experience. Who knows? He didn't talk much about his childhood. What's easy to establish is that Peter Grant grew up fast, tough, and self-reliant. By 15, Big G was out of school, on his own, a neighborhood tough guy working at a sheet metal shop. He was a big kid who became a big adult. And like some kind of British Paul Bunyan, he gets bigger with each telling. The off-repeated legend is the G topped out at six foot five and tipped the scales at 300 pounds. In reality, he was probably more like six foot two and his weight would fluctuate up and down throughout his adult life. In some interview footage, he looks gaunt, like a big person who's been on too many crash diets. Whatever his actual size, the G was nobody to trifle with. He might have been a middle school dropout, but Peter Grant was quick of wit and sharp of tongue, with a master's degree in scuffleology. Well, I wanna, wanna, da-da, da-da, love it. Well, I wanna, wanna, da-da, da-da, hug it. So, baby, can't you see that you were meant for me? The Two Eyes Coffee Bar in Soho closed for good in 1970. It had a good run, almost 15 years as a hip musical venue, one of those cool little places to catch a star on the rise or see an established artist drop in on a Tuesday night for an impromptu jam. Back in Chapter 7, when we introduced the Beatles, we talked a bit about Soho in general and the Two Eyes in particular. Peter Grant worked the door at the Two Eyes in the early 60s. He got to know the musicians on the scene, and he learned something every good bouncer knows. If one is sufficiently intimidating, if one cultivates a certain undertone of menace, then actual violence is rarely necessary. Peter Grant developed and honed his fearsome, I will brook no bullshit aura here. It was just as effective, if not more so, as his thick arms and his fast, strong hands. Some lads from County Surrey who called themselves the Nashville Teens. They had their one and only hit in 1962 with that rocked-up version of Tobacco Road. A decent cut. It was written by the country songwriter John Loudermilk, who copped the title from Erskine Caldwell's tragic comic novel about white trash Georgia. We've talked about it before. British kids in the late 50s and early 60s were straight-up bonkers for American culture and music. We appreciate that immensely. That's how we got the Beatles. But we don't fully understand it. Anyhow, the Nashville teens were the first act Peter Grant managed. One suspects they pulled in less than $10,000 a show. From there, Big G Tour managed numerous other acts, including some top-tier folks like Chuck Berry and Little Richard. 
Over the next five years or so, he built a fearsome rep and learned his way around America. By 67, the musician's grapevine in London spoke it loud and clear. Peter Grant takes care of his boys. Tour America with a G and you'll get paid. What's more, nobody will fuck with you. One hundred and twelve English pounds, about three hundred American dollars. That's how much each of the Yardbirds netted for the entirety of their U.S. tour in the summer of 1966. That iteration of the Yardbirds featured some real six-string firepower, with Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck sharing lead guitar duties. They opened for the Rolling Stones on one leg of the tour. Everywhere they went, the kids went nuts. But the pay was chump change. From sea to shining sea, the Yardbirds got worked. Jeff Beck got seriously ill and left in the middle of the tour. Jimmy Page stuck it out. By his own admission, the touring life was still new to him then, and he still had stars in his eyes. On that disappointing, underpaid Yardbirds tour, his first time in America, Jimmy Page noticed something. Those kids over in America weren't milling around getting smashed and shouting conversations over the din of the band. They weren't caught up in trying to look cool and act cool. They were leaning forward and paying attention. They were a listening audience, Jimmy said years later in a magazine interview. A listening audience. A bigger, better paying audience, too. As long as you had someone smart enough and tough enough to collect. Then, in early 67, Jimmy saw his mates, Eric Clapton and Pete Townsend, take their bands, Cream and The Who, over to the States and clean up. Out in the flyover country, the kids found these Brit rockers exotic and fascinating. Houses were packed and fans were there for the music. Beats the shit out of playing to a couple of dozen jaded, pissed, drunk Londoners. could play on your own terms, too. Extend shows, stretch out songs, and it wasn't flabby, hippy-dippy stuff. The kids dug that psychedelic aesthetic, long jams, light shows, and they especially dug it when Cream and The Who reinforced it with some British steel. They were aided and abetted by some key technological advances. Sound systems took a huge leap forward in the late 60s. Now you had on-stage monitoring and power amps and speaker systems that were up to the job of an explosive hours-long big-time rock show. At the Fillmore's, East and West, the Shrine in L.A., the Grand Ballroom in Detroit, the Spectrum in Philly, and a hundred different college venues, promoters like Bill Graham and Frank Barcelona were creating the modern rock concert. And Zepp, Deep Purple, and Black Sabbath were all right there, in exactly the right place, at exactly the right time. That's what these seminal heavy rock outfits have in common. They made their bones touring in America. 
they had something else in common. And we'll get to that in a bit. American kids ate it up. Ate it up more and more as the 70s began. They didn't want some bubblegum band lip-syncing two-and-a-half-minute hits. They wanted a hard-hitting rock show, an immersive, long-form experience. Set me free, So, any discussion of the origins of prog and metal and heavy rock has to include Vanilla Fudge. Vanilla Fudge never had a hit single or a big-selling album, but they were a big deal just the same. Because they were absolutely ferocious in concert. Fudge played fast and physical and loud, pushed along by the powerful, precise rhythm section of Tim Bogart on bass and Carmine Apice on drums. Fudge's thing was taking pop hits like The Supremes' You Keep Me Hanging On and extending them into long live jams. Lots of build and release dynamics, big choruses, epic keyboard and guitar duels. Cream and The Who, Zep, Purple, Sabbath, that whole freshman class of British hard rockers, they all crossed paths with the Fudge out on the road in America and they all paid rapt attention. Richie Blackmore said early Deep Purple was basically Vanilla Fudge with a screamer for a frontman. Jeff Beck just up and snagged Bogart in a piece to play bass and drums for one of his projects. Jimmy Page liked their dynamics, the loud and the soft, breaking it down and building it back up. Light and shade was how he liked to describe it. But it could be rough and tumble touring in America. Jimmy learned that the hard way the first time through. To make it pay, you needed someone, someone loyal and tough, willing to scuffle and get after it. Polite, slight to build and soft-spoken Jimmy Page was a doted-upon only child, an art school kid from the leafy suburbs of Surrey. Bright and driven, a natural leader, uh, but Jimmy was no tough guy. The Yardbirds were his band now. If he was going to take them back to America and make it pay, he needed someone. Enter the G, the imposing Mr. Peter Grant. After Jeff Beck bowed out, or got fired, depends on who you believe, in the ensuing shuffle, G became tour manager for the Yardbirds. They were unlikely friends, Jimmy and the G, but they got on right away. Perhaps each man saw in the other qualities they were lacking in themselves. Early on, Peter Grant established the parameters of their relationships. You take care of the music, I'll take care of everything else. And he did. This Jimmy Page iteration of the Yardbirds, the final version, was a band in commercial decline. There were no hit singles. They made two albums and neither one made a splash. But they were a strong live act. And there was America. With Peter Grant running things, the Yardbirds crisscrossed the states all through 67 and into 68. This time, they didn't leave money on the table. Finally, back in London, their bank accounts were brimming. But it wasn't enough. 
Early summer of 1968, the Yardbirds fell apart for good. But Jimmy Page got his Surrey mansion right around then. Pangborn, a boathouse converted into a three-story country manor on the banks of the River Thames. County Surrey, south and west of London, birthplace of Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, and Jeff Beck. shall be the whole of the law. listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. 
So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Terrence was a bookish kid. Not much for school, but he loved to read. Big reader. Like a lot of teens, he felt like an outsider. Disaffected. Drawn to the dark and the dangerous. Mum and Dad were Irish immigrants who put down roots in the sooty industrial city of Birmingham. Brummies. Solid folks. Practicing Catholics who cranked out seven kids. Raised them all in a little row house in a grimy Birmingham neighborhood. In the shadow of the dark satanic mills that the poet Milton elided in Jerusalem. In later years, he described it as a happy childhood, thanks to his dad, who was what they call a grafter, North Country slang for a hard working, uncomplaining type, working class guy who works himself to death more often than not. Mum was smart and kind hearted, a vegetarian. Young Terence became one too. More out of necessity than morality, the Butler family could only occasionally afford meat for dinner. Around 14 or so, his Catholicism lapsed. Around the same time, he discovered the works of the late Aleister Crowley, prolific author, cult leader, a notorious figure, hated and feared by the establishment. Just the titles were transgressive, outrageous, and catnip for a disaffected kid, The Book of Lies, and Diary of a Drug Fiend. In our estimation, Crowley was a talented writer, but just another spiritual con man who used metaphysical babble to grift the gullible and get laid a lot. No different from an American TV preacher doing the Jesus hustle, Crowley just happened to suit up for the other team. Be that as it may, young Terrence got pulled in. Crowley and H.P. Lovecraft, but also science fiction novels, horror movies, and The Beatles. I got something to say that might cause you pain. If I catch you talking to that boy again, I'm gonna let you down and leave you flat. Because I told you before. Like a lot of British kids, he loved American rock and roll growing up. But when he saw the Beatles, he saw himself. He heard himself. Guys with guitars from his part of the world. Terrence had a guitar now. Well, of course he did. Cheeky bastard, too. John was his favorite beetle. Leather jacketed scousers flipping the bird and rolling that North Country patois right off of his tongue with a flourish. I 
there is the matter of his nickname, Geezer. Hmm, that's what he called everyone in school. Not a slight so much as a catch-all term, a placeholder like chap or bloke, or if you're over here in the States, dude. You geezers coming or not? Look at that geezer over there. By the time he was eight, the other kids just started calling him geezer, and it stuck. Geezer Butler of Birmingham. In 1967, Birmingham half a world away from San Francisco, and a whole galaxy removed from the summer of love. When and where 18-year-old Geezer Butler started his first band with another Brummie, fellow lapsed Catholic and fellow Beatles fan, John Michael Osborne got his nickname in grade school too. There were better singers out there in Geezer's estimation, but Ozzy was a mate from the neighborhood, and he had his own PA. Talked his dad into fronting him the bread for it, you know? And he had that it factor, Ozzy did. They'd known each other since school days in Birchfield Road. A theater kid, a ham and a show-off. And Ozzy could rattle and prattle with the best of them. Always switched on, never stopped bloody talking. So they called themselves Rare Breed, and they cooked up a repertoire of Beatles and Stones covers with some oldies sprinkled in, Chuck and Elvis, Chicago Blues. They did two shows total. But one of those two was with a band called Mythology. A couple other brummies in that group. A solid drummer and an interesting guitar player. Virtually live with the bloody things when I'm on tour, he says. Always keep a spare set. He's talking about his thimbles. Over the years of touring, he had some interesting conversations with customs officials when they searched his bags and find his fingers. If you've been with us for a while, you know we're kind of lukewarm when it comes to the Rockstar autobiographies. We read them, and because we're fans, we enjoy them. But for the podcast, we lean on books by academics and journalists. But every now and then, we read one that feels authentic. And we like Tony Iommi's 2011 book, Iron Man. He opens with the finger story. Short version, 16-year-old working in a machine shop, Tony lost the tips of his middle and ring finger on his right hand when a metal press slammed down on them. He reflexively pulled his hand back and avoided a really gruesome injury, but it was plenty bad. Both fingernails were just gone. Once all the blood was cleaned off, bone was showing through. The doctors grafted skin from his upper arm to cover it over, but the tips were gone. There was nowhere to form a callus. Black Sabbath fans know this story well. Where it takes an interesting turn for us is a month or so later. Still recovering at his parents' house, Tony is moping around, feeling sorry for himself. The manager of the factory would stop by now and then. Tony thought it was a nice gesture, but he wasn't keen on seeing the guy who ran the joint, where Tony's musical career came to an abrupt and painful end. One day, Mr. Manager Guy brings over a record by the great Romani guitarist Django Reinhardt. Remember him from Chapter 10? The song clip we shared a moment ago is called Django's Tiger. Listening to music was the last thing Tony felt like doing, but his former boss insisted. Bloody hell, it was brilliant. 
And what's more, Django had also suffered a nasty injury as a teen that left him with only partial use of his fretting hand. That hadn't stopped him from becoming a legend. Tony's a left-hander, fitting for such a sinister-sounding guitarist. He allows that the sensible thing would have been to simply flip it over and learn to play right-handed. But he was already a few years in. Before the injury, he was right on the cusp of becoming a working musician. Starting over wasn't an appealing idea. So he came up with the thimbles. Well, they start out as thimbles. Tony cuts the bottom out and replaces the steel with a piece of soft leather, then uses medical tape to attach his prosthetic fingertips. And he modified his setup and his overall approach, tuned it down a step and a half to C-sharp. That made the strings looser, and he started using lighter strings. At first, he used banjo strings. He never really used his pinky much before the accident. Now his pinky started getting a workout. He started exaggerating bends and vibrato for a fatter sound. He tweaked his amp settings, boosted the bottom end. Tony is quick to say there's a lot more to it, and there is. But it's entirely fitting, and that's why the story has legs. That doomstruck Black Sabbath crunch was made possible by an industrial accident in one of those dark satanic mills in Birmingham. So, mythology broke up, but Tony and drummer Bill Ward decided to stick together. The two spotted an advert in a Birmingham music shop. Aussie Zig requires gig. Owns his own PA. Tony looked at Bill. I know an Aussie. He was this loudmouth weirdo a year behind me in school. It can't be him. Can it? Aussie's mom answered the door. John, it's for you! Tony shot Bill another look. Oh, Christ, it is him. Humble beginnings. After some fits and starts, they settled in as a scruffy foursome playing heavy blues. They called themselves the Earth Band, then simply Earth. They weren't bad. Geezer moved from guitar to bass and got very good very quickly. Bill Ward played the drums hard and heavy, but he could also push the band along with a subtle jazz swing. He'd grown up with it. Ozzy turned out to be a singer after all. One night, they opened for Jethro Tull. Tull's singer and bandleader Ian Anderson asked Tony to audition. With the blessing of his bandmates in Earth, this is too good to pass up, mate. Tony went to London, sat in, and got the gig. But the interpersonal dynamics in Jethro Tull didn't suit him. Ian Anderson had his own dressing room, ate his meals alone, and cracked the whip at rehearsal. Tony was impressed by how hard they worked, but he wanted to be in an all-for-one and one-for-all kind of band. So Tony left Tall and went back to Birmingham, back to Earth. Tony told the boys, Right, listen up. If we're going to do this, we're going to take it serious. Rehearsal at nine every morning, shop. 
Another Midlands band out there also had the name Earth. So that was out. Time for a new name. A movie house across the street showed horror flicks on the regular. On cigarette breaks, they'd see kids lined up at the ticket window. Back in the rehearsal room, they were sounding darker and heavier. Geezer down-tuned his bass and started matching Tony's bends and vibrato. Ozzy would hum a melody, and Geezer would more often than not cop his phrasing when he wrote the lyrics. It was around this time Tony busted out that infamous doom-laden tritone riff that opens the song Black Sabbath. Ozzy came up with the opener. What is this that stands before me? And Geezer wrote the rest. There was a horror film out around then called Black Sabbath. And at some point around then, it showed at the joint across the street. Uh, But per Tony and Geezer, there's no direct connection. Geezer allows that maybe he saw Black Sabbath on the marquee and it seeped into his subconscious. Tony just remembers them trying out names, and it was one groaner after another until Geezer tossed out Black Sabbath. Right, that's the one then. Black Sabbath, August 30th, 1969. They played their first gig under the new name. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger! So that's a little of the Sabbath origin story. We've got places to go. Guitar-mageddon is vast, diggers. It is vast. But before we go, two things about Sabbath that we really like, and that sets them apart from Zepp and Deep Purple. In their origins, Sabbath were not unlike the Beatles, four mates from the neighborhood. They developed well outside of London while everyone was looking the other way. Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin were, from their founding, professional enterprises. Zepp was a hybrid, two pros and two newcomers. Purple was literally founded not by musicians, but by a London management firm. Sabbath sprouted up from the polluted grassroots of industrial Birmingham and took everyone by surprise. Four guys with a crazy dream who worked their asses off and managed to catch a break is an appealing origin story. We've told that one a few times now, and we always enjoy it. By 1969, though, that's not how it works anymore. We said it in the last episode. Rock is big business now. The second point about Sabbath is related to the first. Sabbath has a distinct working-class perspective running through their songs. It's authentic, and we're here for it. We absolutely love it. Their bookish bass player, Geezer Butler, wrote lyrics, and with a point of view. Sap and Purple had lots to play, but not a lot to say. Sabbath did. Geezer wasn't Bob Dylan or Paul Simon, more of a blunt instrument, but his lyrics to songs like War Pigs or Hand of Doom have a perspective, a story to tell. And the music slams the message home. It's visceral and urgent. 
it has voltage in it. Butler's songs reference the dark side, but they are really cautionary tales. Geezer's telling the audience, beware of darkness, don't go down this path. But the record company looked right past that and decided it was good marketing to suggest the guys really were occultists or even Satanists. They didn't consult the band, they just sprung it on them with the artwork on the first album cover. It worked. It got people's attention. Chalk one up for the marketing guys. Critics hated Sabbath. Pop radio programmers ignored them. But the buzz was there, and the kids lined up to buy albums and concert tickets. Wasn't it all what they were about, but one can imagine the four members of Black Sabbath looking at each other at some point and collectively shrugging. What the hell, man? It's working. Let's just roll with it. We'd love to take credit for that quip, but alas, we cannot. That's the journalist David Brin writing a profile of Deep Purple frontman Ian Gillen for the Jerusalem Post. So, yeah, we got a couple of hot takes about Jesus Christ Superstar, and it leads us to Deep Purple. First thing, and we kind of knew this, but our research reminded us of it, Jesus Christ Superstar was first an album of songs by lyricist Tim Rice and composer Andrew Lloyd Webber. It was released in 1970 by Decca Records and produced by Robert Stigwood, the talent manager who put Cream together. Then it was a stage show in London's West End and on Broadway, and then it was a movie. Not the usual expected order of things, kind of interesting in and of itself. And since Superstar was an album first and Deep Purple frontman Ian Gillen sang the title role, well, it's kind of right in our wheelhouse. We can't just walk by it. Superstar has endured. It's a massive entertainment franchise spanning half a century. It launched the showbiz careers of Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Love them or hate them, Rice and Webber have undeniably left big footprints on popular culture. And yet Superstar is very much an artifact of its time. It reflected a worldwide discussion that had been going on since at least the mid-1960s. Back in Chapter 15, we talked about John Lennon and his famously misconstrued observation that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus Christ. It was not a swipe at anyone or anything. It was just John making a world-weary, jaded observation about the bizarre nature of fame. John was also implying, Messiahs of people too. Behind the acclaim and underneath the hosannas, I'm just a guy with flaws. Maybe Jesus was like that as well. These notions about fame, about who we sanctify and for whom we build pedestals and what happens to them when we do, started pinballing and percolating through popular culture. Pete Townsend took his shot at it with Tommy, released by The Who in late 1968. Jump ahead a couple of years to David Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars. Rock star as Messiah. 
a leper messiah in Bowie's formulation, Townsend's character was a reluctant, overwhelmed messiah. In between them, the Jesus Christ Superstar album, and it reverses the formulation. Messiah as rock star. The album was a massive seller, by the way. The number one album in America in 1971, according to Billboard. Ahead of Tapestry, Led Zeppelin IV, Who's Next, L.A. Woman, Sticky Fingers, What's Going On? Ahead of them all. of Deep Purple frontman Ian Gillen in the lead role underscored the lyrical presentation of Jesus as a world-weary, cynical star and collapsed the space between the secular and the religious icon. Gillen's status as the perfect tight-jeans, swaggering rock star gave the album authentic rock credentials. There it is, some great singing from Ian Gillen. He recorded all his parts in a single three-hour session. Then he sang a gig with Deep Purple that night. The quote is from a fine 2011 piece in the London Guardian, written by Sophia Deboik. Ms. Deboik wraps it up with... Jesus Christ Superstar was about the pain and suffering caused to the individual by the dehumanizing effect of fame. Showing the superstar ultimately rejected, beaten and killed made the point that the more the celebrity is glorified, the more their humanity and dignity is diminished. Four decades on, this observation is as relevant as ever. Well stated. And file that idea away, it's going to come up again near the end of this chapter. So, Deep Purple had a lot of personnel changes. We'll talk about the Mark II lineup with Ian Gillen and bassist Roger Glover, the band that put out Machine Head and Made in Japan. Richie Blackmore on guitar, John Lord on keys, and Ian Pace on drums were the constant in the band from its inception through 1975 when Richie left to form Rainbow. These three guys were monster players. Blackmore and Lord were innovators who incorporated classical influences, and we think Ian Pace should get more props as one of Rock's great drummers. 
We mentioned Vanilla Fudge up top, and they're one of the first jam bands ever. We're into Deep Purple now, and they're one of the best ever. By jam bands, we mean groups like Fish and the Grateful Dead, obviously, and present-day acts you can go see on the summer festival circuit like Humphreys McGee or String Cheese Incident. What they have in common, their studio albums, while good, don't quite do them justice, uh, the Grateful Dead being a very notable exception. We're not talking about groups with a lot of message or depth to their songwriting. The songs are vehicles for fist-pumping sing-alongs and extended build-and-release instrumental jams with lots of dueling and trading off. It's all about the live show, and we love the live show, so, of course, we love the jam bands. It's neither coincidence nor accident that Purple's best record by far is Made in Japan, a chronicle of their 1972 shows in Osaka and Tokyo. It's a banger, one of the great live albums of all time, and it's a no-kidding live album. No overdubs or edits. Now that is a concert opener. Out of the unholy trinity of proto-metal bands, Purple, Zepp, and Sabbath, Deep Purple was the last one admitted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They were finally inducted in 2016. But they were the first out the gate. In 68, the Mark I lineup had a big radio hit in America with their cover of Joe South's Hush. <laughs> Great tune. And they followed it up with a punchy remake of Neil Diamond's Kentucky Woman couple of great singles, but they also exposed Purple's big weakness. They didn't have a strong songwriter in the group. Sweet child in time, you'll see the They made two albums with the first lineup, and they were all over the place. Cover songs, proggy psychedelic excursions. Then the Mark II lineup for their first album went on a really baffling side trip where they played John Lord compositions with a symphony orchestra. Their U.S. record company was a small, badly run indie label, Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton. Jesus Christ, what a horrible name and a mouthful. Anyway, Tetra was founded by none other than Bill Cosby, the once-in-future comedy icon who turned out to be a rapey scumbag. Tetra went bankrupt in 1970, and the biggest of the bigs, Warner Brothers, got the purple contract in the ensuing fire sale. Album number four, Deep Purple and Rock, came out that year on Warner. In our view, it's the first Purple album that shows some real promise. Lots of jamming and dueling, but it's got songs. Gillen and Glover weren't exactly Lennon and McCartney, but they wrote and arranged. Fireball came out the following summer to big sales in the UK and America. 
In late 1971, the boys took a break from the road and, for the first time, set aside a block of time to write and record an album. They carved a whole month out of their touring schedule, the longest break they'd had in years. They wanted to capture the live sound of an album. In Rock and Fireball were decent efforts, but they just didn't hit like the live performances did. Drummer Ian Pace, in particular, wanted to get out of the soundproofed, sterile confines of a conventional recording studio. On the advice of their accountants, they decided to work outside the UK and save a bundle on taxes. They rented the Rolling Stones' mobile recording truck and block-booked the Montreux Casino Ballroom, which was about to shut down for the winter. Frank Zapp and the Mothers would play a matinee concert on December 4th, the final show of that season. After that, Deep Purple would have the run of the place. The rest, as they say, is history. We're going to leave it here. The story behind the song has been well told elsewhere. But two things about Smoke on the Water. One of them very cool and one of them not cool. Uh, Don't do it. First, the cool part. Richie Blackmore has long said that his iconic opening rift is inspired by the opening bars of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Uh, Give the fifth a listen and, sure enough, you can hear it. The second part... And you know this, <laughs> don't play it at their music store. Just don't. Those folks work hard. Give them a break. Oh, we, we got to keep moving. But there's more purple to come, diggers. The purple family branches out to include Rainbow, Ronnie James Dio, Iron Maiden, and Whitesnake. These bands all have direct personal ties to purple. Tons of other heavy rock bands, notably Metallica, also claim Purple as a big inspiration and influence. Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich gave the induction speech when Purple finally made it into the Rock Hall in 2016. So let's shift gears a bit and move from talking about great live acts to talking about great fans, specifically metal fans. They are the best. Passionate, engaged and informed, argumentative as hell, and we can barely keep up with it, but we love it. We identified Bex Bolero as a key moment in the evolution of heavy metal, and we stand by that, even though we probably will get brigaded on social media about it. Jeff Beck originating in heavy metal. Come on now. What about Blue Cheer or Iron Butterfly? I like smoking lightning. Heavy metal thunder. 
what about Steppenwolf, who literally coined the phrase heavy metal thunder in Born to be Wild? Oh, what about Dick Dill and his fast, distorted surf guitar songs? Or late 50s, early 60s bluesmen like Albert King and Buddy Guy with their fat riffs, heavy distortion, and screaming guitar solos? Yeah, you get the idea. There will be cogent, fact-based arguments backing up every passionate assertion, threads and subthreads, point and counterpoint. Here's a quote from a great piece on the metal fan site gauntlet.com. Heavy metal is dazzlingly complex. It's like several musical languages overlaid one on top of the other, resulting in one of the most complex forms of modern music. Heavy metal fans, in turn, are among the most informed, selective, and discerning music critics, holding their artists up to an extraordinarily high standard. We are completely on board with every assertion there. We're now 50 years on from the early origins of metal. It's become a vast, complex ecosystem of subgenres and regional scenes all around the world. And it's powered by fans, the best fans. Horns up once again, all you metal munchers out there. We love you. friend John Paul Jones got the push from his wife Maureen. Mo heard Jimmy was forming a band and told her husband to pick up the phone. There were gigs lined up. The Yardbirds were contractually obligated to tour Europe that fall, so it was up to Jimmy to put something together and take it out on the road. The new Yardbirds. The search began for a singer. Terry Reed, a blues shouter on the club scene, was Jimmy Page's first pick for a frontman, but Reed passed on the offer. He did mention the name of a Midlands youngster, Robert Plant. Go check him out. He's special. So, with the big G behind the wheel, Jimmy took a ride north to hear the kids sing. G thought the tall, mop-headed 21-year-old was a roadie when they first walked in. When the band started their set, Peter thought they were pretty good, but Jimmy didn't think much of it. But that singer man. A few songs in, Paige knew he'd found his guy. Tall and handsome, an engaging natural presence on the stage, and Robert Plant could go from Elvis Croon all the way up to Arena Rock Whale and back again in the space of a single verse. Page caught up with Plant after the show and invited him down to Pangborn for an interview slash audition. <laughs> Robert brought a Joan Baez album with him. He loved her version of Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, written by Anne Breeden. On the album, it was incorrectly credited as traditional, arranged by Joan Baez. 
Plant wanted Paige to hear it, share his thoughts. Jimmy knew the song well. In fact, he'd been cooking up his own arrangement for a while now. The purpose of the visit, of course, was to share music, establish compatibility within it, and hopefully establish a friendship. And to this end, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You turned out to be the key link. Jimmy, too, loved the song and had intended playing it to Robert. A symbiotic concurrence that helped Robert pass the audition, if that was what it was, with flying colours. That's from No Quarter, Martin Powers' 2016 biography of Jimmy Page. Page and Plant also shared a fierce love for those amped-up, tough-sounding Chicago blues, that chess record sound. We talked about it quite a bit in our first few chapters. Perhaps he was looking to ingratiate himself to his new friend, or looking for an ally in this new about-to-be group, or a little of both. Plant recommended John Bonham, a former bandmate. Bonzo had made a bit of a name for himself up in the Midlands, best drummer on the circuit. Now, Jimmy Page was a veteran session player. As such, he knew plenty of excellent drummers. He had some folks in mind, but Plant pushed him. Before you make any calls, just go see this bottom guy. So Page and the G took another ride north. Here's Martin Power again. A veritable explosion of a man who could be heard several streets away without the benefit of a PA. John dominated his Ludwig kit in a way Jimmy had never seen before. In the course of the next few days, Jimmy and Peter Grant pursued John Bonham like a besotted lover. When they discovered the drummer had no phone at home, some 30 telegrams were sent to his local pub in an effort to woo him into the group. They came together at Pangborn to rehearse as the new Yardbirds. They started cooking up a set to play in Europe. I should have quit your pain. I should have quit you and went on to Mexico. When we started Rock and Roll Archaeology, we told ourselves, and we told you, we will adjust our views as new evidence is presented. And we've tried. We really have. So, let's pick a problematic-as-fuck topic and discuss it. Cultural appropriation is on the agenda today. Cultural Appropriation 
the unacknowledged or inappropriate adoption of the customs, practices, and ideas of one people or society by members of another, typically more dominant people or society. That's the Oxford Dictionary definition of cultural appropriation. It's also a pretty good definition of rock and roll. From the beginning, rock and roll was unjustly and outrageously appropriated by the dominant white culture from an oppressed black minority. Now, chill, chill. Take it easy. We're not saying you don't get to enjoy rock music because it has been appropriated. We're not telling you what to like or what to dislike. We're not looking to cancel or censor anybody anywhere at any time. So just knock that shit off. That's not the point or the purpose here. We just think it's obviously true. And it makes no sense to pretend otherwise. And by the way, it's not just rock music we're talking about here. For much of the last century, much of what America sold to the world is uniquely American in character. Music, dance, fashion, humor, spirituality, grassroots politics, slang, literature, and sports was uniquely African-American in origin, conception, and inspiration. That's Greg Tate, a son of Harlem and a terrific writer and cultural critic. It's from the title essay of a book called Everything But the Burden. Now, if you're feeling kind of defensive right now, don't react. Just listen instead. And just sit with that feeling a minute and try to understand. You don't have to stop liking what you like. You don't have to give away your record collection or anything like that. Just try to understand and recognize When it's acknowledged, when you give the props and share the wealth, then it starts moving away from being something unjust, and it starts to become something more benign. It starts to become homage, influence, tribute, learning about and building upon the work of those who've come before, and nobody has got a problem with that. All right, now let's head back to London and talk about one of the most notorious and wildly successful cultural appropriators in all of rock history. We'll kick it off with a quote from one of our favorite rock writers, Stephen Hyden, writing for Grantland.com. It's true that Zeppelin was unscrupulous in its thievery. It's true that Zeppelin's early records occasionally present a troubling, yet electrifying, and therefore doubly troubling, blackface parody of the blues. Okay, now for a somewhat half-hearted defense of Page and Plant. From the first rehearsals at Pangborn, it was clear to everybody that they had a monster on their hands. A few gigs in Europe as the New Yardbirds confirmed it. Jimmy Page was just 24, but he was already a music industry veteran. He'd been around a few times. His partner Peter Grant, even more so. When they saw an immense opportunity present itself... Well, of course they seized it. We don't fault anyone for that. So the boys hit the road, and Jimmy would carry around the master tapes with him. Wherever they got a chance to book a studio for a day or two, they did. The first two Led Zeppelin albums were recorded on tour, on their days off, and they were released about nine months apart. That's a very, very hard-working rock band, and they kept it going like that for three more years. And they were a brand new rock band, two veterans and two newbies contending with an incredible onrush of demand, the very definition of overnight success. They needed material, 
So Jimmy Page grabbed it where he could. Uh, We don't condone it, but we do understand it. He lifted from himself, dazed and confused, and over the hills and far away are both reworkings of tunes Jimmy did with the Yardbirds. And he lifted from others. Next thing we'll point out, Zeppelin co-opted and appropriated songs, sure enough, but they did put their own stamp on them. That dirty, sexy middle section of Whole of Love, that gigantic build-and-release arrangement of Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You. Original work, and it's stellar, magnificent. And they did get better about appropriation as Zep moved forward. The third album opens with Immigrant Song. It's wholly original, and it's a killer. They open shows with it for the next several tours. Listen to the version that opens How the West Was Won, live at the Los Angeles Forum in 1972. Just a balls-out musical rampage. These guys could be so powerful. Zep 3, by the way, is kind of an underrated album. Well, if anything by Led Zeppelin can be called underrated. It's a transitional kind of record, a bit different. We actually like it a lot. Not as bombastic or as derivative as the first two. Quiet and contemplative at times. Lots of light and shade on that one. And Jimmy Page's production, the big drum sound, making full use of the stereo field, the way he layers guitar tracks, was groundbreaking, brilliant. That's true of all their recordings. But even their masterpiece, the untitled fourth album, you know, the one with Black Dog and Rock and Roll and Stairway to Heaven, that one, Zeppelin IV has uncredited appropriation on it, too. When the Levy Breaks closes out the album and it's a crusher of a song, <laughs> again, we fucking love it. It's also an uncredited remake of a Delta Blues record by Memphis Mini. And that gets us to our last word on this subject. Sometimes it's not what you do, but how you do it. And that's our problem with Zap. They were hardly the only rock band to appropriate the Delta Blues. And they paid the royalties, big checks with lots of zeros, and they corrected the songwriting credits. But only years later, and after a ton of lawsuits. Furthermore, there's this nonchalant, I don't know what all the fuss is about attitude that we've seen and heard a lot from Jimmy Page, and to a lesser extent from Robert Plant. Uh, Maybe their lawyers advised them to do that, to dummy up about it and act surprised. Whatever, it's still a shitty look. Now, we're just fans. We don't know these guys. They don't owe us anything. Just the same. We can't help but think it. Zepp's lack of contrition, their dishonesty about appropriating a big chunk of their catalog is kind of a dick move. It dims their shine, chips away at our appreciation of how great these guys really were. Closed out 1967 with 63 shows in 66 days. Then straight into the studio. Not in London. 
but this time in New York at the newly opened record plant. The Jimi Hendrix experience had been recording on days off here and there at different recording studios in the UK. Six months of that, and they were nowhere. So in January of 68, they set up shop at the record plant, only the second artist to cut an album there. Nine months and about nine million takes later, those sessions produced Jimmy's masterpiece, his final studio album, Electric Ladyland, released in October of 1968. Here's a quote from the review at Consequence of Sound's website. It's Ladyland that feels like the locus, the main junction of where much of music's future spurred from. The extended, stereo-field-spanning breakdown in the epic-length 1983 A Merman I Should Turn to Be forecast the world of jazz fusion and prog as heard through the Mahavishnu Orchestra and King Crimson. The proto-metal scene was built from the raw materials found in the overdriven pummeling and the psychedelic inquiries of Voodoo Child's Slight Return. <laughs> Right back out on the road. It was grinding Jimmy down. He was stuck out there because he was stuck in bad contracts going back almost a decade now. We could devote an entire chapter to Jimmy's legal troubles. Long story short, he didn't get much in the way of royalties or publishing. That stuff was all tied up in court. The road was the only way he could make real money. And make money he did. As 69 turned to 1970... The Jimi Hendrix Experience was on top, the highest-grossing concert attraction on planet Earth. It wasn't enough. Jimi lived a high life, partied like a rock star, but his net worth was negative. Jimi's manager, Michael Jeffrey, was skimming millions. Mooches and leeches and hangers-on by the dozen everywhere Jimi went. Paternity lawsuits, a drug bust in Toronto, astronomical hotel bills, his own lavish spending on clothes, travel, presents for for favored groupies, booze, and drugs. Michael Jeffrey and Jimi Hendrix were building a studio in Greenwich Village, and Electric Lady Studios was a money pit, way behind and hideously overcost. It opened, finally, in August of 1970, but only after the two partners borrowed 200000 from Warner Brothers to complete it. It's still there, by the way, <laughs> the oldest continuously operating studio in New York City. Jimmy ended up recording exactly one track, an electric lady. After a grand opening party where all the rock royalty showed up, Jimmy hopped a red-eye flight to the UK to headline at the Isle of Wight Festival on August 31, 1970. From there, he had a tight schedule of European shows to play. (laughs) 
Richie Havens ran into Jimmy backstage and was shocked at how ill he looked. Havens had known Jimmy since his early days in New York, yet had never seen the mania that Jimmy exhibited that night. I'm having a real bad time with my lawyers and my managers, Jimmy complained to Richie. They're killing me. Everything is turned against me, and I can't eat or sleep. I'm called the Blue Wild Angel. I say Billy Cox on bass, Mitch Mitchell on drums, and uh, whoever's going to be playing guitar. That's a quote from Charles Cross, author of Roomful of Mirrors, a biography of Jimi Hendrix, published in 2005. We used his excellent book as the primary source for our discussion of Jimi in both this chapter and back in chapter 12. The Blue Wild Angels, Jimi Hendrix, Billy Cox, and Mitch Mitchell, took the stage about 2 a.m., five hours late. In a bizarre foreshadowing of This Is Spinal Tap, chatter from the walkie-talkies used by the concert staff was picked up and amplified by Jimmy's array of martial amps. It kind of worked on Machine Gun, uh, made the song sound even more ominous, but mostly it was just annoying. Right before going on stage, Jimmy split his pants. The cold, damp air kept knocking his guitar out of tune. The band rallied, though, and the show was picking up steam and headed for a big finish when someone launched flares onto the wooden awning 30 feet above the stage, setting it ablaze. Security guards rushed on stage and escorted the band away, and the Isle of Wight show ended in chaos and confusion. Some stupid with a flare gun. What? What the fuck is up with that? Was shooting flare guns at concerts like a thing in the early 70s? Ugh. Well, we digress. Fifteen hours later, the Jimi Hendrix experience took the stage in Stockholm. Jimi had a rabid fan base in Scandinavia, but the show was sloppy and lackluster. The next night, September 3rd, 1970, Jimi Hendrix played his penultimate concert at KB Hallen in Copenhagen, Denmark. Before that show, a young fan, a pretty young model, an actor named Kirsten Neffer, offered Jimmy a brief respite at her mother's house. Kirsten's mother gave him some homemade soup, and for the first time in weeks, Jimmy got a long spell of uninterrupted sleep. Upon awakening, he ate a big spaghetti dinner with Kirsten's family before heading out for the show. The Copenhagen show was straight fire, the best Jimmy had played in months. When Mitch Mitchell asked Kirsten what she'd done, she credited a good night's sleep and her mother's soup. Jimmy went back to the Neffer home to tuck in some more home cooking, and again that night he slept like a log, straight through to the morning. Over tea, he asked Kirsten to accompany him to the next few shows in Germany, but she passed. She had a film to shoot.
Jimi Hendrix played his final show on Sunday, September 6th, 1970, at the Love and Peace Festival on the German island of Femarn. The Love and Peace Festival was anything but. It was marred by violence between police and gate crashers, and a large contingent of Hell's Angels terrorized the crowd inside the festival. The Sunday night show was postponed by rain. The following afternoon, Jimi Hendrix, Billy Cox, and Mitch Mitchell took the stage before a restless, unhappy audience. There were chants of go home and even some boos. I don't give a fuck if you boo, if you boo in key, Jimmy taunted the crowd at one point. They rushed through a 13-song set and immediately hopped a helicopter out. The grind proved to be too much for Jimmy's new bass player and old army compadre, Billy Cox. A physician urged Billy to head back to the States to recover, and Billy did just that. The rest of the European tour was canceled. Back in London, uh, without his steadfast friend and longtime collaborator, Jimmy was adrift. He was dodging his manager, Michael Jeffrey. He was dodging lawyers and process servers. He took a room at the Cumberland on September 8th and holed up there for a week. A woman named Monica Daneman tracked him down, and they headed to her room at the Samarkin Hotel in Notting Hill. Jimmy was not an addict, but he was reckless about mixing drugs and alcohol. In the early morning hours of September 18, 1970, he took a handful of Monica's sleeping pills, Vesperax, a potent barbiturate cocktail. The nine pills, the booze he'd been drinking since early the previous morning, and the exhaustion he'd been feeling for months, all conspired to end his life. When his body reacted to this abuse and he vomited in his sleep, he was too far under, too deeply sedated to wake up coughing and gagging. Instead, he stayed under and he asphyxiated. He was already long dead when the ambulance arrived. This was all established by Scotland Yard much later on in 1994 when they reopened the investigation and reviewed all the forensic evidence. Yeah, nobody knows what I'm talking about. I've got my own life to live. I'm the one who's got to die when it's time for me to die. So let me live my life the way I want to. Yeah. Sing on, brother. Play on, brother. So like we said about halfway through, Guitar Mageddon is vast, diggers. It is vast. We can't wrap our arms around all of it. But we do have a few takeaways. 
First, Jimi Hendrix, the late lamented godfather of heavy rock. Rock that centers around the guitar that celebrates blazing virtuosity on that instrument. Brought to the public via the Long Play album and the Arena Scale Rock Show. 70s Rock. Yes, we've argued that Jeff Beck lit the fuse. Cream were also pioneers. Cream's biggest hit, Sunshine of Your Love, was Eric Clapton's tribute to his new friend, Jimi Hendrix. And Jimi got a lot of his performance ideas from watching Pete Townsend and The Who. And of course, as we've discussed today, Zepp, Sabbath, and Purple pushed it along. But Jimi Hendrix just towers over all of it. He was the best of us, said Jimmy Page. Drop the needle on Electric Ladyland and you hear a whole new rock that quickly morphed and evolved into heavy metal, glam rock, funk, fusion, progressive rock, and a bazillion other offshoots and crossbreeds. Expanding on that, here's the Rolling Stone writer, David Fricke, from a piece about Jimmy's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1992. It's a fine article and worth quoting at length. Every hard rock and heavy metal band from Anthrax to ZZ Top owes great debts of inspiration and often direct influence to the Jimi Hendrix experience. Echoes of Hendrix's blues power resonate in the playing of Robert Cray and the late Stevie Ray Vaughan. Likewise, his absorption of jazz concepts and rhythm ideas into his own music later bore fruit in the jazz fusion movement of the 70s. The 70s funk sound popularized by Parliament Funkadelic, the Ohio Players, and the Isley Brothers was a direct product of Hendrix's controversial marriage of glitzy, suggestive showmanship and freaky down-home soul. Prince's songwriting, like Hendrix, is a vibrant tug-of-war between the spiritual and the sassy, and the orgasmic scream of his guitar is unapologetically Hendrix. Which leads us to our next takeaway. The guitar Mageddon explosion reverberated way beyond the 70s, all the way up to the present day. Far more than any other movement or genre within rock music. Metal, heavy rock, jam rock, pick your label. <laughs> it's got legs. It changes and grows, continues to reinvent itself, and it sticks around. Still with us and still going strong. And the whole time, it's been powered by fans, while being ignored and put down by the critics and the elite opinion havers. A few more words on Jimmy, our final take. His career lasted just four years. He put out a total of three studio albums, but nobody left a bigger footprint on popular music. We hope we have made that case in this chapter and back in chapter 12. And you know... Over this span of rock history, something like 75 years now, from the early precursors to the present day, there are some sad stories, but none sadder than that of Jimi Hendrix. This miraculous generational talent, and yet his death was this mundane, sordid little tragedy, just a silly and preventable accident. Some like to put a romantic or mythic spin on it, that he suffered and died for his art or something like that, or he was this beautiful shooting star who flamed across the sky. Okay, that's fine. Think of it that way if it helps you process it emotionally. But come on, get real. Jimi Hendrix didn't die for his art, and there's no magic or transcendence here. 
He was worked to death by greedy assholes. He gave his life for mundane, grubby commerce. The way his business affairs were handled was a fucking crime. We think it's totally fair to say the stress and exhaustion from that, in no small part, ended up destroying him. And then Jimmy's death kicked off decades of bitter legal fights over how to divide up his estate. (laughs) Of course it did. It was 2015 before Jimmy's adopted sister, Janie Hendricks, settled with brother Leon Hendricks. Leon got a one-time payout. The amount was undisclosed. Janie got control of the estate. It didn't end it completely. Janie and Leon continued to squabble in the media and sometimes in court over licensing the Hendricks' name. But we want to be able to say something positive about this whole depressing shit show. So here it goes. Since taking control of the estate just a few years ago, Janie Hendricks and her team have done a very nice job of curating and releasing Jimmy's work to the public. Jimmy loved to jam, and he loved to roll the tape. So there's a sizable archive of unreleased work. When we dug into our research, we were very pleasantly surprised. Since 2018, a bunch of undiscovered gems, alternate studio takes, jam sessions, Hendricks concert performances have been released. In some cases, they've digitally cleaned it up and enhanced it. But again, they've done a nice job, kept it true. So there's your good news. Lots of old but new Hendrix music out there now. And it's authentic Hendrix. It's thrilling stuff. And we just recommend the hell out of it. JimmyHendrix.com or any of the big streaming services. So let's wrap it up, Uh, to the extent that we can. Uh, Like we said, vast, diggers, vast. Anyhow, back in Chapter 11, we talked about the first big schism in rock culture, the mods versus the rockers in the mid-60s. In that chapter, we followed the mods. In this one, we picked up the trail of the rockers. Mod was a big deal, influential, important. The critics and tastemakers are always gushing about the mods. We are no exception. But when it comes to moving vinyl and selling tickets, to winning hearts and minds and winning market share, well, advantage rockers, it's not even close. But at the time, they got no respect. The rock press, especially Rolling Stone magazine, trashed Led Zeppelin. They were even more contemptuous of Black Sabbath. In the early 70s, Deep Purple sold over 20 million albums, toured the world constantly, headlined at major festivals. They were huge. Huge. But they, too, got relentlessly bad coverage from the mainstream rock press. We quoted Stephen Hyden earlier from an essay called The Winner's History of Rock and Roll. 
It opens with a quote from one of those Rolling Stone opinion-having guys, John Landau. Zeppelin's enormous commercial success, in spite of critical opposition, revealed the deep division in what was once thought to be a homogenous audience. The division has now evolved into a clearly defined mass taste and a clearly defined elitist taste. We don't completely agree with Landau. It's not uh, that clearly defined, but we take its main point. There is this gulf between mass taste and elite taste in rock, and it starts to really show up in the early 70s. Going forward, we will find ourselves on different sides of that gulf at different times. In a lot of cases, we will side with the elite opinion. Other times, mm, not so much. For example, progressive rock. Critics mostly hated it, but we freaking love it, and we can't wait to talk about it. Or what about this cut off an album that got trashed by the critics when it came out? <laughs> Now that we're firmly in the 70s, the post-Beatles era, a lot of what we will be doing is documenting different genres and scenes. There's no big unifying cultural phenomenon at the top anymore. So there is a lot of churn, a lot of creative destruction in the early 70s. Things are rising and falling, splintering off, reinventing. It's going to bounce around quite a bit. It'll be fun. All right, next stop, we're back to Los Angeles. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Rock and Roll Archaeology on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Thank you, as always, and keep up the rockin'. Rock and Roll Archaeology is written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson at Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, and links at PantheonPodcast.com. All songs can be found for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods.